And one, one other thing that I would just say is I think that entrepreneurs don't reach out to nearly enough investors, right? There's things totally out of your control, just like their fundraising cycle, because they have a fundraising cycle, yes. right? Or macroeconomic conditions or random, this LP got skittish. Just not out of your control. Someone's got a pass and it's not not anything to do with you. And I think I hear all sorts of entrepreneurs be like, oh, I talked to I talked to all the VCs. They weren't interested. They all passed. I'm like, all right, how many people did you talk to? And they're like, these are three people I talked to. I'm like, you're joking. I'm like, all right, step one, get back out there. I think until you've talked to 100 investors, right, you can't say that people aren't interested. And I think people don't really have that scale in mind. There's a lot of investors out there. And again, yeah, you just got to keep trying and, and be specific and, and targeted. Yeah. Hello, dreamers and action takers. Welcome to another episode of the Want Money, Got Money podcast. I'm your host, Sam Kamani. And my guest today is Slater Wickroft. He is the founder and CTO of Indico Data, and he's also an executive at residence at Point 406 Ventures. At Indico Data, they specialize in turning raw data and images into human insights via machine learning. And also, I wanted to have this chat with Slater because he has the experience of not only building a successful startup and not only raising tens of millions of dollars for his startup, but also being on the other side, being as an investor or an, an executive at a venture capital firm. So he gets to see everything from both sides of the view of raising funding for your startup. So if you are an early stage entrepreneur, if you are into um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, Web 3.0, or raising funding for your own startup, then this is the episode for you. So let Let's lean in and hear more from Slater. Good afternoon, Slater. It's great to have you on the show. Looking forward to talking with you and finding more about um, your own background. How did you get started into entrepreneurship? Oh, I, I would love to say it was a very intentional and long journey. But, but honestly, it's something if you told a 17 year old Slater that I was going to be an entrepreneur one day, I don't think he would have believed you. I think I showed up at college and I grew up in LA and the startup scene, certainly back then, not really a thing. It was not something that I was exposed to. Very different in Boston. And as everyone does, when you get to college, you're looking around trying to find your thing. But I got very much bit by the startup bug when I went to work at, a, at this small startup one summer at my first internship, which I think that, that's always how it goes. And then it's the slippery slope. So when I actually got back my sophomore year, have you ever heard of Kaggle? Kaggle? Maybe. It was this, it still is this platform, but it was for a crowdsourced data science competitions. So the idea is that people would come, they'd upload data sets, uh, there'd be some cash prize, and then whoever builds the best algorithm would win that cash prize. And the thing that was so cool about it is that it was some of the top people from around the world. It was PhD students, it was industry labs, and it was us, these uh, couple of uh, sophomore college students at the time. And really, that was how it started. We didn't know it at the time, but it was just two friends doing something that they really loved as a side project and before it took on a life of its own. Yep. That's very cool. I'm checking out Kaggle. I'm going to put that resource in the notes for anyone who wants to check out and is interested in this space. <laughs> you open my it's, it's great. World to another sort of a world or a portal. Yes, it's great. It's really cool. And then from there, how did you... So were you one of the founders of um, Indico Data? Or did you join yeah. a bit later? 
Yeah, no. So me, me and Alec, those, uh, we were two folks in the dorm room. We founded Indico uh, Data together. And then we brought on Madison and Diana later. So there's the four group of founders. And we honestly weren't very sure because when we founded the company, we were in school, as I kind of mentioned, and we worked on it through our whole junior year. I say from the hours of 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. on Sunday nights. And we had these software packages that people started to really like. And we started getting a lot of positive feedback and a lot of downloads and a lot of people congregating around them because they were very usable. We took a really developer-centric approach. And then we applied to a couple of accelerators on a lark, frankly. We did not think we were going to get in uh, and our application was not very good, but uh, we just thought there was so much value to be learned even if we didn't get in from the feedback that they would give us in failing. They were like, look, it's only upside for us. And then we got into Techstars, which obviously is a pretty pretty great accelerator. And then that sort of got us to a $3 million seed round coming out of that program, at which point wow. we realized we weren't going back to school. <laughs> that is amazing. That, well done. Well done. That's a, that's a success story. And how many years ago was that? When did you do Techstars? Yeah, so that was 2014. And so obviously a lot has happened between then and now. Uh, we did a big yeah. pivot from a developer-centric company to enterprise. That's worked really well for us. And now we're about 70 people. We've raised a bit north of $35 million over our lifetime. A lot of things have changed, but in, in a lot of ways, uh, things have stayed the same as well. Yeah. How did you know when and how you should pivot? It's, was it just that enterprise has more resources than individual developers? or I it, It's a great question. I got a phone call, really, is what happened. So roughly, we had this big thesis around developers. We tried it, and we got to the end of this first kind of 18 months, and we're like, it didn't work. That wasn't right. We didn't really execute on this the way that made sense. And even though the developers really liked it, it was such an early market that they didn't really have any budget. So we're like, okay, whoops, that didn't work. But we just happened to get this cold reach out from John Hancock Manulife. And basically just on a lark, I, I just, they asked what the price was. And I'm like, ah, I threw out some ridiculous number that was over 10 times higher than our current selling price. And they're like, oh yeah. And at that point I realized that we really might have something on our hands there. And it was really interesting. And they absolutely love the product. And then what we actually did, because I was the CEO at that point, which made sense for the developer centric company. And I'm like, look, to get after the enterprise software market, that's a different skill set. I don't quite have that. And so we brought in a CEO. I switched over to the CTO role and the rest is history. That was in 2018. And then we've grown uh, crazily since then. That's amazing. That's really, really good. So what do you think in your view has been the hardest part of growing your company? Oh, gosh, so many things. It's so hard to... So I think a really big part of it comes down to the team, frankly, is one of the things that's always top of mind is how do we get the absolute best people working here. That, that old, it's something like, I'd never want to be in a club that would have me. I think it's, it's having that mentality is actually really good in the startup, I think, because so long as every person you're bringing on board is smarter than you, you're going to have a great company on your hands. And especially if, if they're then empowered to go and do the same thing. So I think that was, but it's extremely difficult to do. I think especially nowadays more than ever, salary expectations are really high. And while on the plus side, it means that people can effectively work on side hustles. It also means that it's a lot harder to really start a company uh, without getting some initial funding. Initial funding is easier to get now. Just things have really changed. I yeah. think that's really what it is. But I don't know. I think that those are really the key pieces. And I think that 
we just, uh, we keep trying to tell ourselves patients, if it takes six months to fill a role, that's okay. When the right person is here, like they'll love us and we'll love them and everything's going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. I have seen that in the last year and a half, a lot of, there is talent arbitrage. The talent that you get in, say, on the coast in U.S. is so much more expensive than in center of U.S. or in Eastern Europe or in Mm -hmm. Asia somewhere. Um, Do you hire talent overseas or remote or as well or? Yeah, so we we are open to hiring people overseas, but from a tax perspective, it's actually very bad for them to do so. They end up... it's. It's both very complicated because they end up having to set up a corporation that then hires them and they get double taxed all across the U.S. So actually, when the pandemic hit, we shifted to a remote first model or remote equivalent, I would say. We still do have a large presence in Boston. I'd say upwards of 50 percent of our employees are in the Boston area, but we're also strewn across, you know, 15 states at this point. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I would say that it's, it's interesting. It's changing. And and you see a lot of big tech companies are coming to this sort of crisis point with it, right, because they've had this premium built into their pricing of if you live in San Francisco, we're going to pay you differently than if you work out of the Nashville office. Um, But now people are working remote and you hear all these trends, people pretending to live in San Francisco, but actually they've been in a camper for the last nine months. And it's interesting. I think it's, I think it's probably not sustainable. And I think actually, I think it's really positive because I think that it means people will be able to live where they want, as opposed to having to be consolidated in one area. And I think it, it really opens up like a, a life that's not so commute centric, which yeah. I know in, in the US is just, it's just awful. No matter where you live, your commute sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that is so true because the thing is you go to any sort of a cool hip, place i don't know could it be it could be bali it could be croatia it could be anywhere you will see a community of developers and people and startups and tech who officially have their employer based in in us or europe or western europe or somewhere and then there or even for us we have australians working for us who Mm -hmm. work out of thailand because of like lifestyle and they yeah. save so much money. It's just accommodation arbitrage. You live in Sydney and you will pay 5000 a month and there they pay 300 a month. The rest is saving yeah. and they have a very good lifestyle at the same time. So absolutely. I, I, I feel like, unfortunately, like the U.S. is not that good on this point. I think this is a place where I wish the U.S. were a lot better because I, I completely agree. I feel like there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't just work with the best talent wherever they are. And that yeah. feels like the that feels like the best way forward. Certainly on the research side, that's just how things operate. The the broad spectrum of places where you see really high quality AI research coming out of. And I think the openness has just benefited that space so tremendously. Yeah. Yeah. And also there is a very limited tech talent in US and the US has relied on H1B visa for a very long time and it's only so limited and that's why yeah. people are getting paid 500,000 plus a year in one of the big sort of four or five tech companies and it just raised the bar for anyone building a startup but that's yeah. where yeah that's where it no. is and, and that's actually the thing that's interesting it's a little bit the double-edged sort of the pandemic right because it used to be that if you were remote you had this really big edge because Google and Microsoft and Amazon they weren't remote so you could look anywhere. Now, 
they are remote. So now yeah. it, it's, it's crazy. Like we'll, we talked to a candidate in Louisiana that's maybe a thousand miles from the nearest Google campus and Google is reaching out. So even no matter where you are now, it's interesting. You still have to compete against these tech giants, which is, which is fascinating. It, it also, it makes the question, I think, for people of like what they're looking for in their job a lot uh, more salient because I think it's, it changes that in a lot of yes. meaningful ways. Yeah. Yeah, I have a like a software development um, agency, and we have seen in the last six months nearly we had a thirty percent turnaround of staff because it's like if you're a software developer, then you're getting better pay than you just leave because there's so much opportunity. Wow. And just for context, I'm based in New Zealand, and New Zealand's the same. Last year and a half, the immigration hasn't been running, so we all of our tech talent is drying up because all the tech talent used to come from India and you know Eastern Europe and everywhere else who used to immigrate anywhere here. else, right? Anywhere like, I'm else. Not picky. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. It's very interesting, and what we are paying our average payroll per employee has gone up. The agencies pay a lot less than product companies and funded startups generally. So mm, mm, now mm. you have to match because now we have had oh, um, in the last year and a half, like Google's moving into New Zealand, Amazon's moving in, Shopify's moved in. And every one of these companies are so well resourced when they go and hire, they hire. Wow. And New Zealand's so small, like 5 million people. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. they suck up all the talent, just, just like AWS is going to invest in the next, I don't know, few years, seven and a half billion in New Zealand. So imagine how many staff they will hire, how many people, yeah. and they will hire all the talent. There's just one company. Yeah. No, it's a great point. But I, I feel like the thing that all of these companies have really learned is that a developer is just capable of creating so much value. Yes. It, it, it's, it's a superpower almost, right? What you can it do is. if you just know how to cope. And so I honestly... It's great. I think yes. that uh, people talk about AI taking software jobs. We need software developers. If you're just like, yes, we're always going to need software developers. And I, that comes from an AI guy. Yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. That talk is just like, it's just in the 1930s, they used to say that, oh, we are getting all the machines now, vacuum cleaning will be done, dishes will be washed, and then we will just be able to relax. We will not need to go to work or we'll roll five hours a week or something. And or yeah. everything in the house will be done by end of like year 2000 or something it, it didn't happen it didn't happen because it only creates more jobs for everyone it, exactly yes. as, as a person you're just like wow awesome i've got this time back in my day now i'm going to go do things with that time like me like i i rock climb i, I write science fiction novels I, I grow gourmet mushrooms and and i cook like yes you could not have all of those hobbies 100 years ago you simply you know wouldn't have the hours yeah. in the day yeah absolutely and now just because you have these hobbies there is a company making mushroom packs and selling those. There right, are influencers yeah. on TikTok. Huge space now. And actually. it is a huge, it's a multi-billion dollar, just mushrooms alone. Edible mushrooms is a multi-billion dollar industry. The, the thing is, you know, yeah. the thing that over my, you like go to the grocery store and it's this little pack of mushrooms and it's $6 and, and they're delicious. And you know, I'm like, okay, great. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. But also yeah. I think one of the other things that was really eye-opening, I forged mushrooms for the first time recently. And I found this huge hen of the wood mushrooms and it was just, it was one tree, just randomly found it. And I like did the math and it's 15 pounds of mushrooms around this one tree. And it's hun some hundreds of dollars of mushrooms, right? It's way more yeah. than one person could ever consume. But I think it's just, I, I don't know. It's so cool that you can grow so much and it's so tasty. And I think it's just, it's a very high volume product, a value product. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And when you go into any industry, you realize that every industry is like, it's so deep and it's so like, it's a multi-billion dollar industry and it's got so many issues, like things with supply chains and everything. And there's like thousands oh, yeah. of people employed in, in any, anything. <laughs> and, yeah, and that's why- just like a setting up home HVAC systems for gourmet yes. mushroom growing. I'm sure that's its own whole industry with, you know, <laughs> the <companies>. long tail <laughs> that yeah. Amazon and Google has gone after. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So they, I, I do not think that we're going to run out of jobs for software developers. It's one thing I'd like to talk about, and that is Web 3.0 is just getting started. Imagine if you are a blockchain developer now, are you going to run mm. out of a job for the next five years? No, not at all. No, I think uh, one thing that I think it's the reverse, right? Because I think that as time goes on, no matter how many more developers there are, right? It seems like the appetite always is outpacing the, the supply. Mm. So yeah. there's this one concept that Gartner has, they call the citizen data scientist. But I, I love this idea of just taking people that might not have a full four-year education in software engineering and figuring out, okay, what parts of the development process can they still be involved in? Can they still do productive work if, they've get, if they're giving good tooling? WordPress being an obvious example of that, but I think there's a lot more to come. Oh, a lot more to come. I know back in, I'm a dinosaur, I've made websites in the late 90s and stuff like <laughs> um, and early 2000s and stuff and it was completely different world and then you get you got the wordpress and all the website builders and it got a lot easier to to build websites and stuff but that didn't and that didn't mean that all the web developers got unemployed <laughs> any no. far from it <laughs> Yeah, you've got a whole new industry around it now. Yes, yes. There are only more agencies, only more stuff. Because even now, if you want to do make your website, get data, send data, all that stuff, you still need people who know what they're doing. Absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah. And I've been, and the speed only gets faster. So I feel like your company has such a good, you're in such a good space. Earlier, we were talking about the platform where we're building and we will need to structure all of our data. We have thousands of predictions are being made on our website and we want to now add NFTs to our website. And that's a whole new ballgame. And Absolutely. people like people think that oh, the stock market fluctuates a lot, but then if stock market has a 10% fluctuation, it's a once in a decade event. Crypto market has a 10% fluctuation. That's a one in... That's a Tuesday. No, yeah, that's a one in a 10-week event. But mm. the NFT market has a 10% fluctuation. That's a one in 10-hour event. Yeah, the NFT market moves like... It's crazy. Six weeks in NFT market is six years in other <laughs> other sort of wow. things, which is wow. absolutely crazy. So yeah. the speed with it is it's moving. I have never seen anything like that. Some NFT projects itself are worth over a billion dollars. Yeah. And like just wow. last month, over $10 billion worth of NFTs were traded. My goodness. So imagine that the is amount. fast. Yes, that is very fast. So it's like or around 11. But the thing yeah. is that imagine the amount of data that is creating and imagine the number of people who are leaving their jobs wanting to get into this space, into the whole yeah. 3.0 space. And it is just incredible that there's going to be, and a lot of these are images and unstructured data that people will yeah. want to structure it. So I feel like you guys are in the right spot at the right time. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really interesting because I think you've seen over the past couple of years, 
the number of things you can do with structured data, it's just incredible. The level of analytics you get out of the box with something like Google Analytics, like I, that, that's amazing. That, yeah. That's an incredible yeah. product. And it's, you know, and it's, and it's free. And that's a starting line. And I think one of the things that is really interesting is that you do look at a lot of the open problems and so much of it is on structure. It's images and it's text. And you think about, uh, there was something that was really interesting. I don't know. Did you hear about the, uh, the epic data hack? Yes. Yes. Yeah. One of the things that was interesting is there, there were a lot of emails as a part of that hack and they were talking about how it's X many gigabytes. And they're like, look, it's going to take us years to read through this because we've got to read it. And that's still where we're at. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily recognize kind of unstructured data has been uh, kind of dark. It's siloed from the rest of the data infrastructure usually. Yeah. Yeah. So how does... Yeah, absolutely. Have, have you heard of uh, BERT and GPT and these yes, sort of... Yes, uh, GPT-3. I think we had a yeah. GPT-3, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, to go back to the earlier story, Alec Radford, my original founder, right? He's like the father of GPT. And so one of the things that's really interesting is that these these large-scale language models, they're called, right? And GPT is an example and Burton is an example. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of these and you see all these very cool demos. But basically what they are very good at is learning new concepts based on very small amounts of data input by humans. So this is something that's actually, it's really interesting. It's very novel, right? Because usually the way that you'd have to go after unstructured data, and this is why so much of it is not analyzed. It's like, all right, I want to classify all of my tweets. Great. I need 10,000 examples for every class. It's like, okay, I'll see you in four years, right? Just massive data pools. And maybe it would work eventually, but just tremendously difficult. And you've got to throw dozens of people with PhDs at at it. It's changed really dramatically just in the last few years, where we've got this idea, Stanford calls them foundation models, right? Transfer learning is a broad area of study. But the idea is you make these large scale models that just have a general understanding of the world. The way that I describe it, they're not doctors, they're not lawyers, they just speak English, right? That's the level of understanding they've got. But the really powerful thing is that when you've got a basic model that has that, you know, foundational understanding, it means that a downstream person, then they don't need 10,000 examples to train something. They need 50 or 100. And suddenly that changes a lot. That notion that, okay, great. Now you as a user in an afternoon, maybe you can build some new custom kind of analysis. You can extract some custom kind of data because you can do it so quickly because you are dealing with a small enough amount of data that a person can keep it in their head. It really changes the ballgame in a few different ways. Yeah. So where does where does um, Indico fit in? Like, how do you help enterprises? Yeah. So basically, adopting these technologies is really difficult. We've been working in transfer learning and large scale language models. We had a big press release about it in 2015. Most folks think this is an 18-year-old space. So basically, we've got an enterprise-grade platform where we've got access to all of these techniques that is constantly updated to be on par with the state of the art or sometimes beyond the state of the art, depending on how the winds are blowing. And you've got UI for it, so the machine teaching and and a way for non-technical subject matter experts to interact with it and a really rich API layer, kind of auto-scaling and and infrastructure ML ops and, and all that goodness. Yeah, looking at how, so where does Indico's context cloud fits in and how it integrates with automation and analyzing and applying and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so those, those are our main application areas. You know, obviously there's a lot of automation going on nowadays, like loan applications, things like that right now are still very opaque processes, very difficult yes. to audit. So it's like Bob said these pack, these documents were good. 
okay, great. Like how, how do we know that we're doing this consistently? And it turns out most folks don't. So that's a really nice application area analysis. I think that's obvious. That's a very, very good example. So probably a lot of financial organizations probably use you guys for, um, yeah. So what sort of clients do you generally look for? Which area are you wanting to expand more into? Yeah, so we're mostly in the Fortune 500 right now. And like yes. you said, BFSI, so that's banking, financial services, and insurance. Uh, commercial yeah. property management, that's also a really big market for us. Uh, and I would say one of the most interesting next markets that we're going into is healthcare by way of health insurance, as you might imagine. That's a somewhat yes. logical transition. Different industry with its own quirks. Technology works fine. It, it applies very well, but you've got to sell it differently, apply it a little bit differently, and and really just make sure that you're hearing the user and, and tailoring things to them appropriately. Yeah, yeah. Um, you guys have raised funding or have done a few funding rounds and stuff. And just wondering what, in your view, what you think you have done right to manage to close those yeah, I think that, and I've got some experience on on both sides of this. I'm an EIR for 406, so I do specifically technical diligence on a lot of companies. And I think one of the most important things is being honest and upfront, uh, specifically on the technical side. And I think that's something that we've done a really good job of. And it's importantly, it's on both sides, right? Is be really clear about what you haven't built right? What the drawbacks are, where it's not applicable, where it's not proven. And that means that the person is going to take you that much more seriously when you talk about that here is what we have solved. Here's what is, and you need that push and pull to, to have that, that credibility. Because like the, if the investor you're pitching knows what they're doing, the person they bring in for diligence, and they usually won't be doing it themselves because they won't understand your business well enough, but they're going to know what they're talking about. They're going to realize that like a five-person company isn't going to build something incomparable with a 500-person company. Like they know what kinds of things you can get done. So like just be upfront about it and they will be, they'll be impressed by your confidence and your willingness to admit what you don't have. That's very good advice. But does that apply to only later stage? Because that thought that in early stages, investors are banking on the team and very absolutely. early stages, pre-seed I'm talking. No, I, I would, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And to that point, it's when I'm talking with someone, there, there is still usually a technical diligence portion in the pre-seed phase. But to your point, yes. it's a completely different, uh, it's a completely different aim, right? If I'm talking to a later stage company, I'm going to expect some kind of actual technical advantage. If I'm talking to an earlier stage company, I absolutely don't expect that. What I'm looking for is someone who can communicate concepts. I'm looking for someone who is going to be fundamentally honest again and represent what they do and don't have. That's really what's important. And someone that makes good and reasonable decisions. And that's really, that's the extent of it. I'm not, I'm very much not looking for someone to like razzle dazzle me me and impress me with how complicated the thing that they built it. I want to hear, this is like my style. This is who I am as an engineer and and convincing me that you're the person who can build a company, that you've got a plan for it really yeah yeah that's very true that's very true any advice for entrepreneurs looking for funding in their like fairly early stages of building their company yeah i would say be really hyper specific that that's something that also helps quite a lot is vcs while they're they'll usually be opportunistic and they'll pick on stuff randomly. They try to be very thesis driven and you're going to have a much easier time, especially if you're doing cold outreach. And that's another thing that I think people don't understand is like 
cold outreach does work with VCs. You, you don't need a warm intro, right? Like they have people whose whole job it is to sift through incoming folks and look yes. for things that are promising. So that is actually a, a path that very much can lead to success. But you have to understand who you're reaching out. That's really the key piece is do they have companies that aren't competitive, but are similar? Do they have founders that have similar theses? Is there some blog post that they wrote that says yes. they're really interested in this area of technology? And, and you'll have much, much higher success rates. And one one other thing that I would just say is I think that entrepreneurs don't reach out to nearly enough investors, right? There's things totally out of your control, just like their fundraising cycle, because they have a fundraising cycle, yes. right? Or macroeconomic conditions or random, this LP got skittish, just not out of your control. Someone's got a pass and it's not, not anything to do with you. And I think I hear all sorts of entrepreneurs be like, oh, I talked to I talked to all the VCs. They weren't interested. They all passed. I'm like, all right, how many people did you talk to? And they're like, these are three people I talked to. I'm like, you're joking. I'm like, all right, step one, get back out there. I think until you've talked to a hundred investors, right? You can't say that people aren't interested. And I think people don't really have that scale in mind. There's a lot of investors out there. And again, yeah, you just gotta, you gotta keep trying and, and be specific and, and targeted the outreach. Yeah. I've never seen this much funding out there that's available Absolutely. ever. In my whole yeah. like last twenty years, it's a blizzard of cash out there. What what uh, what Tom always says is it's not sales where you care about your conversion rate. It's like dating in marriage where you only have to be yes. right once. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Very true. So true. And yeah, you need a bigger sample size sometimes because you're you're yes. bound yeah. to make mistakes. And the first few times, it's yeah. I look at my pitch deck from the past and it's, what was I sending? What rubbish oh, is this? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you look at the first pitch deck you ever made, and then it improves because you get feedback, you get more users, you get and and it all helps. It helps you improve your story over time and stuff. So it's so true. Even like Robinhood had to go through 75 rejection species that rejected it. So you there have you to, and, and most how to, they have a target of around 100 to 150 that they reach out to and have meetings with. And then raising funding is a full-time job, unfortunately. <laughs> it is. It absolutely is for, for many months sometimes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, we got a term sheet from an, a potential investor a month ago, but then we decided oh, yes. to just continue bootstrapping at, at this stage. Also, we weren't, but, but we weren't like 100% sure. It's like, these are people you're going to have a long relationship with. Many yeah. years. Yes. So marriage is an appropriate analogy in many ways. Yes, absolutely right. Absolutely right. So we definitely will do that again. This is just personally, yeah, we will definitely yeah. look for funding. We just wanted to try a couple more things that we are doing and, and it's I mean, working it's, really it's, well. So it's great to do that. Honestly, I think it's a little bit like a drug. It's very easy to get addicted to VC money. I always tell entrepreneurs, don't raise until you have to. And I, I think that that's the other thing. Wait as long as you possibly can and realize that raising funding is... Uh, have a really specific reason you're doing it. Don't do it because it's the thing to do it because it's a big market. You're making play for it or because you need to grow really quickly to capture market share. People make great companies bootstrapping all the way every single day. It's absolutely yes. a path. It's just a, a different path for different businesses. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you have, as long as you have a stable income from some other sources or you don't need income, that's fine. Bootstrapping yeah. is fine, but funding is okay. If otherwise you're going to die. 
as in like the company's gonna die if you don't get funding yeah. then you have to you then it becomes a necessity yeah yeah that's never when you want to raise funding but often yeah that's when you have to raise funding yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's true. try to try to raise from a place of strength i would say Absolutely. try to raise it for i'm scaling the business but yeah that that is the flip side is sometimes you do just need someone to get you through the next six months or something if you've got yeah. a good reason why that's going to really change things Absolutely. For me, my our um, thesis is that okay, as soon as we know we have got a really strong product market fit, even if we don't need money, we will definitely go. I'll start reaching out again. I'll stop reaching out at the moment, but I'll do that. Yeah. yeah. Sort of, yeah. But then you want to scale, and then you've probably yes. got something a market that you're making play for at that point, which that's perfect, honestly. Absolutely. Yeah. Having said that, uh, before we go, I've just got a couple of questions at the towards the end. Uh, one of that is, if you had to start all over again. What would you do differently if you have the same knowledge, but you're just starting out of university or college again? Oh, gosh. Other than everything. Yeah, I think the biggest change I would make is, I guess I would just like jump to the thesis that we've got right now back then. And, and I think I probably would have let it be a little bit more of a slow boil. I, I didn't realize just how early the market was. This is maybe unique for us because we were like very kind of bleeding edge tech. So I think I would have waited to get a couple of steps further before before putting on the gas. Yeah. No, timing is so important in any startup. So, yeah. so important. You can't yeah, I mean, have... it's still, it still worked out, obviously, but, but it would have been a lot more ideal to time that a little differently. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. And finally, is there a book that you're reading right now? Oh, yeah. So there's one that I love called The Rock Eaters. The Rock um, Eaters. I've never heard that one before. Yeah, it's it's a collection of like magical realism, speculative fiction, short stories. Yeah, actually, I, I can get the author for you. It's by Brenda Peinado. Cool. Sounds very, very interesting. It's cool. It's It's worth a read. Yeah, very interesting. I think I like it. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. And finally, do you have an ask? Are you looking for anything? Are you looking for team members, employees, funding, anything? If looking always for feedback on the Indico product, I always want to make it better. We just launched our free trial. It's at trial.indico.io. Cool. If folks want to try it out. Yeah, definitely. I'll put that link out. And awesome. so we could, anyone can use it for... Can you give one or two examples where... Yeah, if you want to build uh, ML models, extract data from text, right? Any kind of text analysis or automation projects, that's what it's great fit for. You don't have access to like 100% of the product, but you've got 80% and you can, you can build some pretty powerful custom ML with it. That's very interesting. I'll definitely pass it around. I'll put it put the link in and yeah, sounds very interesting. So look, it's been great having you on the show. I'll put all the links to, to your website, to your personal profile so people can follow you and yeah, wish you all the best. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a total pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sam. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Want Money, Got Money with Sam Kamani. Hope you enjoyed the show and got some valuable insights that would help you in your startup or your business. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate this show on your favorite platform. It would be extremely helpful and I just cannot tell you how much I would appreciate that.